Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadeen Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Service. And I say every week it's uh, another episode and another fantastic guest, and I'm incredibly honoured today. Uh, I've uh, got many fantastic guests coming on in the future, but I'm very lucky today speaking to my first retired Chief Constable, Sir Peter Fay, recipient of the QPM. Welcome to the podcast this morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good to be on here, yeah. So, Peter, I always want to wind back the clock in one's policing career. And the first question I always like to ask is, why choose a career in policing? Uh, an interesting one. Um, I would say it was down to one particular metropolitan police officer, Pat Byrne. So um, I grew up in the East End of London, went to an all-boys school. Um, pretty rough. Uh, a lot of my mates were stealing cars um, and doing stuff like that. But um I was involved with a church youth group run by a Metropolitan Police Officer, Pat Byrne, who was a, an amazing home beat officer, as they were called in those days. Um, you know, he got me interested in policing, talked to me about it quite a lot. I actually went away to university, studied languages. And at the end of it, thought I'd, my, my father actually wanted me to be an accountant. So I, I joined one of the big accountancy <laughs> firms, uh, did it for three months. Uh, I was working in London. Um, and in my lunch break, walked down to Fleet Street, and it was the last day of the publication of the old London Evening News. And there was a load of blokes standing around who were going to be made redundant that day. And I thought, I've lost my contact with you. Went back to the office, um, handed in my resignation that they were very shocked about, because it was a big 
American wow. company um, and uh, decided to join the police. Yeah, so that's that's how it came about. Yeah. And what was that recruiting process like going in? What sort of tests were you put through back in the early 80s? Um, <laughs> I remember it was a sort of a, a fairly simple interview um, in, in those days. Yeah, so I actually did the interview, um, you know, I think with an ACC uh, chair in the board um, and then few weeks later they contacted me and said these these things called home office interviews would you like to go for those and, and that I went for those past that and then it ended up in what in those days was called a special course where you went to Brams Hill um spent uh, seven months of my life at Brams Hill um on accelerated accelerated promotion course so you know um spent three and a half years as a PC, three and a half years as a sergeant, and um, you know, then ended up as an inspector with seven years service. Um, you know, and, and, and met a lot of good people on the way. I was on the same course as Peter Nerud and um, Sir Bernard Ho- uh, Ho- Lord Hogan, how is he is now. Um, yeah, so that, that's really how it turned out. Um, uh, and I joined Hertfordshire Police, um, but after uh, some time there, about eight years, decided there were you know, other things happening elsewhere. Uh, and decided to transfer to the West Midlands uh, across as an inspector. Um, and, and to be honest, had a fantastic time there. Yeah. It's what was family's reaction, family and friends reaction to this move out of sort of this, this big banking institution, uh, accounting institution and straight into this vocation of policing, which is incredibly, di- incredibly dynamic. It's quite complex in terms of legislation, policy and procedure. I say it every week, but often there can be this sort of strange reception from friends and family when you make this big announcement. What was that like for you? Yeah, my dad didn't talk to me for a couple of days. Um, you know, uh, I, in those days, again, when you applied to join the police, they sent around a sergeant to do a home visit. Um, and I, many years later, got to see the form and the sergeant had written, this man lives amongst um, a number of active criminals, but there's no evidence that he actually consorts with any of them. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it was sort of an area that was fairly hostile to um, policing. So, um, yeah, you know, my dad wasn't very impressed. My mum has always been very supportive. Um, and the nice thing really was that, um, you know, when I eventually became uh, Chief Constable of Cheshire and got the Queen's Police Medal and went to the palace, my mum was able to come along and, and my dad was able to see that uh, and felt very proud, you know. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think for a lot of people, particularly coming from working class areas, particularly in those days, um, you know, there was a lot of questioning about people who, who joined the police and almost seemed to be going over to the other side. So the academy or the training or the training college in 19, in the early 1980s, that experience must be vastly different to what kind of uh, new recruits go through today in terms of standards. Yeah, yeah. In, in those days, it was regional training uh, court centres. We went away to Ashford in Kent. Um, it was a lot about, I remember actually the first night an inspector came in and absolutely put the fear of God into us. I think it was actually calculated. He put the fear of God into us and we sat there afterwards and said, look, folks, the only way we're going to get through this is we stick together. So I think it was actually yeah. a, a clever way of creating the team spirit. Um, and what is always crucial in policing is, you know, supporting one another and working as that team and working out the strengths and weaknesses in your group and making the best of it. Um, but yeah, you know, I wasn't uh, terribly good at marching um, in those days. Again, if you failed inspection on the parade, you got a nine o'clock parade. You got a nine o'clock parade, which meant when everybody else was in the bar, you had to appear before the duty officer in full uniform at nine o'clock at night. I got four of those. Um, but I also um, <laughs> was joint top student, which was nice. So, um, yeah, you know, it was a, it, it just was a very, very different time. You know, it was quasi-militaristic. 
it was the time before Pace, um, and in a force like Hertfordshire, I joined. I went to a place called Stevenage. Really, the police ran the town, and the CID ran the town. There was no complaint system. Um, you know, a lot of what I saw, you know, I'm not particularly proud of. It was a crazy system. The only thing I would say is that the magistrates and, and the whole legal system connived in that. Um, you know, a lot of it was really crazy. Um, but I, I was there then with the introduction of the Policing Criminal Evidence Act. And, and that was probably the most profound change I saw in policing. People talk about other things, but undoubtedly the Policing Criminal Evidence Act with, you know, all the rules about custody officer, custody, stop and search, everything completely changed, you know, the culture of policing. I think largely for the better, it made policing far more professional. You know, up to that, it had really been, you know, there were a lot of cowboy things going on. And there were a lot of officers acting on a wing and a prayer without any real idea because the law was just so indistinct. There was these things called judges' rules. It was just nonsense. Um, you know, and it wasn't healthy. Um, and officers were put in a position where they were constantly having to do things which they knew really in their heart hearts were wrong. But the bizarre thing is that you went along to a magistrate's court and they must have known it was a complete load of nonsense, but they still convicted people. And in those days, you did an interview. It was not tape recorded. You did this interview with a prisoner. Um, after you'd completed it, you then went away and sat in a report writing room and you wrote, wrote a record of that interview and then claim that it was a verbatim record of that interview. Now, physically, there was no way you could have remembered a 30-minute interview word by word, but that's what you did, and you yeah. had to go along to court and swear, you know, an oath and say that was what had happened. The magistrates must have known that, known that was a complete load of nonsense, physically impossible, but that was the system they connived with it, the lawyers connived with it. Um, and therefore, later, when there was miscarriages of justice and the legal establishment, and a lot of lawyers jumped up and down and said how outrageous it was what the police were doing, I was quite angry because I knew that, you know, that whole legal system had connived with that uh, and made that happen. So the Policing Criminal Evidence Act created a system where officers had the right rules, had the right guidance, where it was much more about professionalism, you know, it was really profound. And the other thing which was really profound was actually Yorkshire Ripper case. Because the Yorkshire Ripper mm. case profoundly changed the way that detectives worked, and particularly the professionalism around murder investigations, you know, with the major incident rooms and the Holmes computer, all those sorts of things, which are taken for granted now, but have just massively changed, you know, investigations and the professionalisms of, of, of detectives. And I think, you know, that was a massive turnaround because, you know, again, I, I served in a time where there was just a constant stream of miscarriages of justice, Birmingham 6, Guildford 4, many, many other cases um, yeah. where, you know, people had been sent to prison who were clearly innocent because of things that the police had done. And whatever may be the failings of police now and the criticism, it's very, very rare you actually hear of a miscarriage of justice due to police misconduct. You know, there are other things going on, but on the whole you know, most murder investigations and serious investigations are conducted to a very, very high standard. Um, and there's not many people who, you know, uh, get that conviction overturned because of police misconduct. Uh, and that was a, you know, that's a huge change of how it was, you know, in, 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 the, uh, in the 70s and 80s. 1977. The millions of people who used Britain's M1 motorway shivered with fear as they reached its most northerly point the city of Leeds. They all knew that terror was stalking its streets. Four women had been murdered in the city by a maniac with a grudge against women. Two others had been slaughtered in nearby towns, 
and at least four more had been badly injured in his insane attacks with a hammer. All of them had either been prostitutes or women walking alone, perhaps mistaken by him for ladies of the night. Police studied the map of his early attacks, searching for a geographical pattern. His first murder was in Leeds in October 1975. Wilma McCann hit on the head, then stabbed. Next victim, Emily Jackson, also in Leeds, January 1976. The third victim, Irene Richardson, was stabbed in Roundhay Park, February 1977. By now, all women in the area were feeling threatened. His fourth victim, Patricia Atkinson, was struck down in her Bradford flat by four blows from a hammer, April 1977. This time, he left the print of a size 7 Wellington boot on her bedsheet. A newspaper called him the Yorkshire Ripper because, like Jack the Ripper, his Victorian predecessor, he attacked and disfigured prostitutes. But in June 1977, the Yorkshire Ripper killed a girl who was not a prostitute. Her name was Jane MacDonald, and she was only 16. Now panic really set in. The most experienced policeman in West Yorkshire, Superintendent George Oldfield, was put in charge and publicly staked his reputation on catching the killer. Petitions demanded the return of capital punishment. The police appealed for information and opened special hotlines. Maureen Long was lucky. She was attacked by the Ripper on a piece of waste ground in Bradford in July 1977, but this time he failed to finish his grisly job and she escaped with injuries. For his next attack, the Ripper moved away from Yorkshire across the Pennines to Manchester. It was here, three months later, in October 1977, that he made what could have been a fatal mistake. When you, I often describe, I often, one of the questions I ask is, you know, policing presents a number of challenges, both physically and emotionally, when one graduates into it in the first couple of years. You know, you're starting to deal with matters that you've never come across, for instance, of sudden death and trauma and domestic violence and drunken disorderly behaviour and violence, etc., it, it, it would appear to me that, that some of the greatest challenges that you faced in your early years was actually watching this sort of behaviour going on around you. Was that was it sort of did were you aware of sort of these sort of bad elements of, of police sort of just doing what they thought was right and just making stuff up and, and, and was was that a challenge to your integrity and your ethics? How did you manage and navigate that? Yeah, I think you know sometimes it was a challenge to your integrity and ethics, but at the end of the day you joined the police, you were part of a system in a democratic society. Um, mm. You know, and absolutely, you, you, you're sometimes faced with a dilemma: do I do I leave or do I um, stay and try and change this? And at the same time, it's worth saying, you know, I worked with some incredible, lots of incredible police officers who worked within that system yeah. and did their best, uh, and on the whole, showed you know incredible compassion, um, operating within that system and operating within the rules that that were there. So, you know, as I say, there's things I see, you know, reflect back on now, which, you know, I'm not particularly proud of. But, you know, that was the system operating at that time. I would like to think that I got the chance to play a small part, um, you know, in changing that for the better. I, ju I just think it's, it's a shame, really, that sometimes, you know, policing is in the moment. Policing is not very good at looking back at history looking back at why things happened, how things have changed, 
you know, and, and, and I think that's a shame because policing has been through some difficult times, but also has learned a hell of a lot. And in working with police forces around the world, um, you know, in America, in India, in Africa and, and in Ireland, one thing that's really struck me is that the British policing system is incredibly open and accountable for all its weaknesses and all the rest of it. British police officers and British society just doesn't understand how accountable and transparent British policing is. You know, most of the rest of the world, policing is not a noble profession. You know, it's used mm. by corrupt governments to, you know, suppress opposition uh, and to target the vulnerable and do some awful things. Um, you know, British policing has learned some very hard lessons along the way. And I was part of those lessons around Stephen Lawrence and all sorts of other cases but on the whole, policing moved forward, accepted the changes and became a hell of a lot pro more professional. Um, I just think now that it's been let down by wider society and by the government in, in, in that policing has not been given the tools and the reform it needs to deal with you know, modern society and modern challenges of, of criminality. But I think all officers face ethical dilemmas. You know, even today, there's lots of things officers have to do. And I think, again... You can't be naive about that. You know, you're in policing. Yes, it is noble. Yes, you do help people. You do wonderful things. You are brave, all those sorts of things. But you are part of a system and you uphold and reinforce that system. And there's lots of officers, you know, at the moment having to enforce protest legislation. I suspect quite a few of them have serious issues with. But, you know, that and, and, that, and that's what you serve up and join. And But, you know, I think sometimes... You know, we, we can't be naive about that. And, and I have a real problem, really, that, again, the police are criticised for being institutionally racist and for all, you know, all the disproportionality. Sorry, we live in a, in a country, in a society that institutionally is racist, where, you know, black people suffer problems right through the your education system, the health system right the way. Why are you just picking on the police? You know, mm. and, and I think sometimes policing and police chiefs haven't been open enough and challenging enough to say, what do you expect? The policing reflects the rest of society, reflects the systems in society. Um, and therefore, don't be surprised if, 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 if policing just mirrors things like the disproportionality and discrimination which is there you know, in, in all government systems and services. You're on the accelerated promotion scheme. You spent a period of time at, at Bram Seal and you moved through the ranks quite quickly under that scheme. I think you said within seven years you're an inspector. Do you think you were ready and prepared to take on that sort of role and responsibility of that first commission rank of inspector and what was it like? Yeah, I think it, it was really, you know, I, I think I was lucky. Was I lucky? I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 I'll be honest, I found the most sat leadership is a wonderful thing. You know, to be in charge of, mm. of, a, of a group of people, to hopefully give them, you know, some direction, um, to try and assist those, you know, and, and motivate and encourage those that have perhaps lost their thirst for policing um, and to help those who are really talented to develop. You know, it's the greatest thing in the world. It is the greatest thing in the world. Um, and so, you know, through all those ranks, that's what I love doing. You know, I didn't like working in office jobs or headquarters. I love just being um, a leader. So I, you know, I did, I do, I did feel equipped for that. I think we got a lot of preparation in Bramshill in those days, but a lot of it was, you know, your own, hopefully your own skill, you know, in listening to people, being very much in tune with what's going on in the front end, going out there, being with your officers patrolling, um, you know, understanding their reality, um, and you know, one of the things that give me real satisfaction, you know, I remember a particular officer at Coventry, you know. Um, 
who I worked with and spoke to, you know, and after a couple of months, he came to me and said, I, you know, I felt totally negative. I felt totally depressed and demotivated about policing. And you've absolutely lifted me up. And I've totally changed my attitude and feel great. about it. Now, that's not everybody. Some people you didn't rescue. Um, but leadership is, is a wonderful thing. It's, it's an enormous privilege. I suppose, Oliver, if there was one, I think the bit that you feel unprepared for is when you become a chief constable and suddenly you are a chief executive of an enormous organisation. And you can do your leadership bit, but suddenly you're responsible, like in GMP, for a, um, you know, a budget of £660 million. Um, you're responsible for IT contracts, buildings, all sorts of other things, as well as all the politics. But at the end of the day, you are a chief executive running a major organisation with major risks and responsibilities. Uh, and I don't think we were prepared well for that. Now, you have good people around you, you have finance directors, you have IT directors, and you hopefully get skilled at working out which are the ones I can trust and which are the ones I, I can't trust. But I think that is, that they are the big risk areas. Uh, and often, you know, I, I know, when I was involved in the training of, of future chief constables, they always said, look, you know, that's where you're going to get caught out. You know, you're probably not going to get caught out on an operational issue. You're going to get caught out on a money issue, on a budget, on a contract on a totally failing IT system, whatever it might be. And, and I do think that chief constables, uh, you know, are not properly prepared and trained, um, you know, to take on that enormous responsibility of huge amounts of money. Yeah, and, and running, a, as you say, a really complex organisation. Was leadership was leadership, some, leadership something that came to you naturally or something you always had to work at to be better at? I don't know, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I suppose that's that the people that I led. Um, I would like to think, for some reason, it came to me naturally. Um, I, I would like to think that, I suppose in a strange way, I don't know, because, you know, you didn't have a huge amount of experience, because I was promoted very young, and yeah, I think it possibly made me more aware of trusting people around me, listening to them, and hopefully working with them, uh, and not being the big I am. And I did see some people who thought who came through the accelerated promotion scheme who sort of were quite arrogant and thought, I'm really clever, I've got a degree, I know better than you. And I hope that was never my attitude. You know, my attitude was I worked with some incredible people. Um, I knew the ones who were the shift leaders, who had the influence on the shift. Um, you know, and, and would like to think I worked with them. Um, I made the difficult decisions when difficult decisions were required but always try to be open and personal and approachable and have a bit of a laugh. But the key thing was always being out there, you know, taking every opportunity to get out there on the ground, even as a chief constable. So, as I say, it's for others to judge. You know, I, I would like to think, you know, as I say, it did come fairly natural. Part of it is, though, you know, and you do get to that level where it's about making sense of a complex world and giving a clear direction. And I was always mm. critical of leaders who just said, oh, this is really very complex and we've got more and more workload that we can deal with and I'll just push that down to the front line and let them make a decision. I was really, really clear. No, you have to have a plan. You have to decide how many staff we've got and what is the priority and what we're not going to do. And that's, I'll be honest, that's how I, I tested and what I expected of people below me, that you as a leader give that clear direction. Uh, and just pushing it down and, 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 and ignoring the fact that there's some real difficulties on the front line, there's not enough vehicles, printers aren't working, the building's crap, whatever it might be, that's not leadership. That's just abrogation of leadership. So I would like to get, you know, think that I you know, set some fairly clear standards 
about what leadership was. And ultimately, as I say, in any organisation, it's about giving a clear direction, being clear what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. Did you look up to anybody in particular who sort of you saw as a leader that you wanted to sort of reflect? You wanted their skills and capabilities, something that you admired? Yeah, no, absolutely. I was I was very lucky to work with some amazing leaders. You know, Mick Bromwich, the superintendent at Coventry, um, Brian Quilter at uh, West Bromwich. Um, and then I was just very lucky when I was in Surrey to work with um, Ian Blair um, and Dennis O'Connor. Um, uh, and Dennis in particular, you know, has, has always been my role model, a, a remarkable leader. So I think we all have that, don't we? You know, we're really mm. lucky. Absolutely, we aspire to people. And, and, and Dennis taught me a lot, you know, because he was very, very good at giving a clear direction, but he was probably also the most caring leader I ever worked with um, and the guy who was most passionate about his own staff. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, absolutely. I was very lucky to work with lots of, of, of really good leaders and the sort of leaders who wanted to give time to you and encouraged you. And, and again, I would like to think that's something I learned, you know, always look for who are the people that are going to replace you. Hopefully always find people better than you who are going to come after you. That's a key job as a leader, not to say, I don't like this sort of challenge. I don't want these rivals. I don't, you know, these people are too clever. No, celebrate the fact you've got good people who are going to do it better than you and you can encourage them and support them to get where they need to get. So after eight years, you moved from Hearts to West Mids. What was that first move um, sort of triggered by? Uh, it was triggered by because everything was happening in the big cities, to be quite honest. Uh, I was in the spectrum <laughs> art, which was a lot happening with due respect. Uh, there were in the city rights and all sorts of things going on. Um, so uh, as part of the special course, I did a three-week attachment to Coventry um, and contacted West Mids and said, could I transfer? transfer across and um it was an amazing time i joined west mids just after they'd been named the worst police force in the country they'd had um they had birmingham six they had the serious crime squad um you know probably events that you a lot of your listeners may not remember they may not have been born but were enormous painful so west midlands was in a complete mess um i in effect was a clean skin because i'd come in from outside um and so in a way it was almost like to, to be able to breeze through and there was the most amazing, it wasn't funny, there was the most amazing, dreadful scandals. Um, you know, the chair of the federation got sent to prison. One of the key chief superintendents in um, Birmingham got sent to prison, essentially for fraud and dishonesty. It was um, a really difficult time. But in a strange way, when you're going through a difficult time, you know, you learn a lot and you move through. And because they wanted some new blood in the, the CID, they made me a detective superintendent. So... Um, you know, I, 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 I loved West Midlands. Um, I was a superintendent at Smedic. Probably the time, first real connection with an incredibly diverse area. Worked with Sikh community, Muslim community. Absolutely loved it. Uh, you know, probably the happiest time of my whole service was being a superintendent at Smedic. So again, you know, I was very lucky, Oliver. And that's why I always encourage people, you know, if you can get a chance, move around. You know, mm. try new things, work in new places stretch yourself uh, i worked in five different police forces that's not always possible for people with family commitments and everything else and it you know took a toll on my own family moving around the country and children having to move schools but gosh you know it really benefited me in seeing just different organizations the different cultures in police forces different policing environments you know i, I benefited hugely from that 
one of the greatest challenges of coming into a, a force which is under great amount of pressure, and as you say, labelled the worst peace force of the country, is morale. How do you, one of the greatest challenges is lifting morale back up. What's, how do you go about tackling that challenge? From as, and obviously people see you as maybe a bit as, as cautious coming from outside? No, really, no. I think you've got to bear in mind, Oliver, that always there may be all this happening up here in terms of big scandals and big publicity, but actually quite a mm. lot of the officers on the ground don't always feel that because they're just getting on mm. with the day-to-day of coming to work um, and their families and everything else. So I think, you know, as an inspector or a superintendent, you know, you, you try and say, well, whatever's going on out there and whatever's in the papers and all the rest of it, we can only every single day go out and do our best and I probably was a message for me right the way throughout my career because policing is always under criticism, you know. And even, you know, similarly in GMP, people used to say, why aren't you doing more? What's in the Daily Mail? And I used to say, look, I can't change the Daily Mail. What we can do is every single day you go out and change the perception of a member of the public by the service that you give or even by what you put on social media, what you put on Twitter, whatever. You tell your story. Um, so that's what you do, you know, in, and in Coventry and in Smedic, you know, again, you say, well, whatever's going up there, this is our bubble, this is Smedic, um, <laughs> and we've got some great officers and we'll work really well with our community. And, um, you know, I had some really good thief takers um, there and I just put them in positions where they went out and they did what they needed to do and arrested some bad people. Um, and we were a really high-performing high, high subdivision, as they were called in those days. So I think that's all you can do, you know, when when... The big bad world is doing awful things around you. As a leader, you can just really say, right, well, okay, we can't change that. Let's operate in our bubble. Let's make our bit of the world better. Let's, you know, affect the change which we can change in the things that we've got. And, and you know, every, every single day, every single police officer has this enormous power to go out there and change somebody's life. And that is, you know, again, that's incredible. With due respect, you know, if you're stacking Huge. shelves in a supermarket, you don't have that opportunity. As a police officer, you have the chance to go out there every single day and be with somebody at the worst moments in their life and make a fundamental difference to their life. Um, you know, and, and, and when officers are demotivated, that's what you've got to remind them of. That's what you've got to remind them of. Whatever's going out there, you just go out and make that difference. What was your biggest highlight during those eight years at West Mids? It was been, it would probably been the superintendent of Smedic, really. Um, you know, and, and having your, that was your first command, the first police station that I had my own. Um, so that was probably, you know, that, that was probably the highlight. Um, and as I say, working with the Sikh community and the Muslim community, just in a really deprived area, but an incredibly friendly area, you know. And I'll be honest, you know, I, I, I'm a, I live now back in the Midlands and, and I do think it is, on the whole, a quite a warm and friendly, easygoing place. Um, so, yeah, that, that was probably, um, you know, my highlight. And, and that's... You know, you, in policing, you're involved in some big events, and I was involved in some big events. But it is really the day-to-day of policing. It is your job as a leader, and it's about whether you can lift a place um, and hopefully make people motivate and make a difference in that local area. At that point, then, between eight, when you got to 1997, you know, rank of superintendent, running a command, did you desire more? from your leadership capabilities did you want the trajectory that you originally originally reached for and that's why you sort of planned for this move down south to Surrey to give you greater exposure well I think you know you face a dilemma don't you you know do do you stay where you are and you're enjoying it Hmm. but you're also frustrated about a lot of things going on around you and you're frustrated by some of the people who are in charge of you 
And therefore, at some point, you either got to, you know, shut up complaining and get up and, and yourself, you know, get go for that position and try and make that change, or you just get... Mm. And I faced that dilemma a couple of times. Um, but I decided, no, I will go in those days. Well, it still is. You know, you go for the National Assessment Centre. I went back to Bramshill um, and uh, on the Strategic Command course um, and then was able to apply, apply to be an Assistant Chief Constable and there were no vacancies in... Uh, in West Midlands, so you fly around the country and and some you know quite a few, fail quite a few interviews, and then you get a job in a place called Surrey. Um, so yeah, that that's how that operates. But it is that dilemma, as I say, you know, you, you you can decide no, I'll stay where I am. I'm enjoying it, but I'm really frustrated and angered about some of the, and I'm le- I'm led by people, some people who I don't think are very good, and I think I'm better. <laughs> and at some point, you either got to <laughs> up and accept that, or you got to say right, well, I'm going to try and get up there and see if I can do a better job and change things. And and I was just lucky I had the opportunity. I, I think there is an element of luck. You know, I, I got the chance to go to Surrey. I worked with people like Ian Blair and Dennis O'Connor. I learned a lot um, and then got the chance to go to Cheshire. And then sadly with the, you know, Michael Todd, the chief of GMP taking his own life, um, he created an opportunity for, uh, for me there out of, you know, so sometimes it is about grabbing those opportunities, but ultimately, you can keep on complaining or you can decide, no, I'm going to get up there and see if I can do a better job. Tell us about Surrey as a force, as its geographical responsibility. What's its greatest challenges down that part of the world? Uh, Surrey was, um, you know, again, in your police career, you realise that often areas with a pretty low crime rate can be the most demanding. So Surrey at that time had the lowest crime rate in the country. It was the safest place. On the other hand, it was very close to London. So all the different cases we had, like the murder of Amanda Dowler, and um, the deep cut investigation and various other things got massive, massive publicity. And we did scratch our heads and wondered why uh, these cases getting all that publicity and there's things going on in the rest of the country that the media is ignoring. And then you realise it was because most of the journalists lived in Surrey and a lot of the politicians lived in Surrey. So it was that sort of place, really, you know, quite a lot of private estates, obviously deprived areas as well. But it was just really that degree of focus while I was in Surrey, there was a boundary change. We took on part of the Metropolitan Police because of the introduction of the um, London Mayor. So we took over areas like Epsom. Uh, we policed the Derby for the first time. So that was quite an interesting time uh, as a take, taking over places like Epsom and Staines um, and the force becoming, I think, about a third bigger. Yeah. Talk about taking over from the policing the Derby from, from, from the Met. We, we, you know, we spoke off air about an incident in 2001 in terms of a bit of a, a security scare, which I, I would imagine would, you've had, would, would have created a few tense moments. You want to tell us about that one? Yeah, that, I mean, that's probably the, uh, the hairiest moment of my career. Um, at that time, people may remember or not, but the IRA was essentially putting hoax bomb calls into major events, uh, and they'd caused major disruption of the Grand National by putting in a coded bond call. Um, so the security services were wondering what to do about this. Uh, and essentially they decided to call the IRA's bluff. So as we were preparing for the derby, um, they came to us and said, look, um, there'll probably be a coded bond warning. Uh, we are pretty confident it'll be a hoax and we want you to do nothing. So um, we'd only recently taken over the derby. I think it was the second time that we were doing it. Um, and uh, we'd done all our preparation. We did a lot of searching. There was a big security operation. We searched cars and people coming in. Um, but then we sat there um, and uh, about half an hour before the derby was supposed to run, 
Um, yeah, we got contacted and said the IRA are putting a coded bomb warning. Um, so we had to sit there for the next hour um, while the derby went off on live television. Um, totally relying on the advice of the security services. I laughed, but it obviously wasn't a, it wasn't a funny moment. Um, and thankfully, because of the good work of the security services, they had called the IRA's bluff, and eventually they they stopped using that tactic, which had caused enormous disruption. Um, you know, but we forget about those times and, and the nature of that threat, and it was clearly a, a serious issue. But um, we had very good advice from the uh, security services and from intelligence. But you know, for me as the commander running the event. Yeah, you know, it was a pretty hairy moment to knowing that if it all went wrong and there was a bomb, uh, clearly we'd be uh, under massive, massive investigation. How did you, you know, you've spent a, a quite a period of time in policing up until this point, and and you know, there's a lot of pressures that face police officers at all ranks, from from constable up to chief constable. How did you manage those pressures in terms of support functions, talking to people? You know, was it was did your faith support you through your policing career? What were sort of the elements which aided you in 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 coping with the stress associated with the job? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, all those things really, isn't it? It's your family, it's your faith. I, you know, I was always really keen on doing things outside, you know. It's a strange thing when I was in Surrey, one of the biggest things I did, which had a big impact, was be a, a, a chair of a school governing body, which then went into special measures and was declared a failing school and had to lift it out. And it's a strange way. I learned a massive amount from that. Um, so, you know, a lot of it, Oliver, is, is about doing things outside. It is your family. I was very involved in scouting as well and in the church. Um, but I think it's also about, Having, you know, I think it's also about being clear about your own set of values and your own mission. You know, I think that is always a key thing. You know, I always again told people, be really clear what it is you believe in. Be really clear about why you're doing policing. Be clear about also your values and how you lead and how you run an organisation and how you get the best out of people. And I think if you've got that clear in your own mind and you're able to stick to your own principles, even when you're being criticised, and often the biggest criticism comes from within policing. You know, you have that confidence. You have that little voice which is saying, yes, um, but, I, but I'm confident I'm doing the right thing here. You know, and ultimately that's what British leadership is about. You know, it is about you see the wider world, you see the political pressures, you see what's happening operationally, the intelligence and everything else, and you make a decision, this is how we're going to go. And, uh, and inevitably quite a lot of people will come with you um, some need a bit convincing. Some people you could spend the rest of you know time. You'll never convince them. Um, and at times you absolutely have to, as you say, no, this is the right thing to do because I do re I respect what you're saying, but I can see the bigger picture. You know that's the advantage of being a chief constable. Whether you like it or not, I see the bigger picture. I see that you know the whole thing. I see all the financial issues, the operational issues, the political issues, what the public are thinking, and this is making sense of all that. This is what I think I have. we have to do. And I think, you know, if you've really thought that out, you've talked to people, you've consulted to people, you've listened to people who disagree with you, but you've then decided, right, this is what we're going to do, then ultimately that gives you a strong foundation when you start getting buffeted and when you meet storms, that hopefully takes you through that. Yeah. When you move into those senior ranks and you're in Surrey Police, as you say, it's quite a heavy populated area of politicians and journalists and, and the like, and... Obviously, you're dealing with local politicians at quite a senior level. How do you manage those relationships? Was that a, it was obviously something that you have to get used to, but how do you manage the sometimes conflicting priorities of both policing and what the local member expects? Personally, I, you know, I found that the most difficult bit of being a uh, you know, chief constable, of being a chief officer. 
Um, it was always when you're under that political pressure. Now, when I was in Surrey and when I was in Cheshire and part of the time when I was in Greater Manchester, we had a police authority made up of 17 or in GMP's case, 19 members. Um, and they were always really, really clear that they weren't political, party political. And I was a big fan of the police authorities. They asked you challenging questions, but um, they had longevity. They were there for the long term. Um, and they could, the good ones could handle, yes, we'll ask you difficult questions, but at the end of the day, we are your employer and we care about you and we'll treat you like a human being. Um, the, the, the difficult bit is when you get pressure from national politicians, when you get pressure from some particular uh, MPs or I've got a particular issue, a particular hobby horse, whatever it might be, and put you under direct pressure in meetings or in the media. And probably, you know, they were the most difficult, challenging times of my police career, if I'm to be quite honest. Now, again, people on the ground probably don't think that. They think, oh, it must have been that murder or this bit or that bit. No, when, when you are the chief constable and you are very clear of what is your role in our, in our country, your operational responsibilities, your operational accountability, your operational independence, and you come under political pressure, that is, you know, really, really difficult. And I had some really difficult moments where I had MPs telling me this is what the law said, and I had to tell them, no, it's not what the law says. Um, this is what the law says. But at the end of the day, it's my job to make a decision balancing everything, as for instance, as how we're going to deal with this protest. And my worry at the moment is that discretion for chief constables and commanders on the ground to be able to use their discretion and to take everything into account and say this is the right thing, that room is being really reduced because of the way that the law is being tightened ever, ever more and because the way that politicians are now intervening on social media, even in the middle of events, uh, commenting on live investigations, whatever it might be. You know, that, that used to be territory that politicians didn't enter. They stayed out of. I think now they're in it all, you know, and I think that is making it more difficult. I think it is much more difficult um, for chief constables now than it was certainly for me and certainly than it was, you know, my predecessors as chief constables, you know, they were, you know, they, without being blasphemous, they were like God. They were in complete control of their kingdom. You know, they couldn't have any criticism what they said happened. Uh, and, and you know, over time that quite rightly eroded and chief constables came under more uh, oversight. Um, but I think now in a way that's gone too far in terms of, you know, the political in interference with police powers and um, in the way that, as I say, comments are made, are often during protests, during you know investigations and stuff like that. Let's talk about this move to Cheshire. What prompted that one out of Surrey, back up north? Uh, again, you're in the same position. Uh, you know, in, in Surrey, as it happened, because different people went and came and went. I was an acting deputy, then I became acting chief for a little while in Surrey. Um, but then, yeah, you get to a position again, you know, do I stay in Surrey as a deputy for the rest of my career or do I apply to be chief? In those days, you couldn't be three. You couldn't be assistant deputy and chief in one force. I think that's changed now. But in those days, if you'd already been assistant and deputy in a force, you had to move to become a chief. So, again, you went on the, on the circuit, uh, applied for a number of jobs as chief, um, failed quite a few interviews, um, different places, but turned up in Cheshire. They liked me, I liked them. And so, yeah, ended up as Chief Constable of Cheshire. 
Were you aiming for a big job somewhere in the country? Was that your aim? Maybe were you? did you have your eyes on the Met? Did you have your eyes on the GMP top job? At that point in your career in 2002, did you have your eyes set on a chief constable role? Was it something that appealed to you? Yeah, I think, you know, you know, you get that position and you think, gosh, I can do this. Um, I see other people doing it. So, yeah, I thought you get to a position and you think, yeah, I could be a chief constable, particularly when, as I say, you've been an acting chief constable. You think, yeah, I could be a chief constable. So, yeah, you know, apply. You have you have your views about policing. You have your own sense of mission uh, and vision, what you want to achieve. And, and you sell that to a police authority and hope they want to buy it. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I don't think particularly at that point, I thought, what would I do after being Chief Constable of, of, of Cheshire? Um, and as I say, just opportunities arise and, and, and you go for them. Um, yeah, so that's, that's how I ended up in Cheshire. But, it, you know, it was, in that, you know, it was very much, you know, you, you don't really know where you're going to end up. Your family don't know. You know, you, I went to Sussex. I went, at that point, I went for Greater Manchester. I went to Devon and Cornwall. Um, was unsuccessful at those places. And then eventually ended up in Cheshire. That was the next one on the circuit. Uh, and you travel around with the same group of people all trying to get chief jobs um, and some get a job and fall off and other people join the caravan. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I ended up in Cheshire. Yeah. What's Cheshire like? What were your biggest challenges there as a county force? Uh, in a strange way, Cheshire was very different to Surrey in that it was in on the whole, yeah, you know, not didn't have huge operational challenges. But, you know, there was no media interest whatsoever. So it was really striking that we'd had this massive publicity about the murder of Amanda Dowler in Surrey, huge national coverage. And shortly after I came to Cheshire, um, a young gypsy lad called Johnny Delaney was murdered in Ellesmere Port. I think that there is a spectrum which begins with calling people names and it extends through minor acts of violence to the case of Johnny Delaney where he tragically lost his life. Johnny was attacked and set upon by uh, a gang of youths. Um, they started calling him names, racist names. What, what happened was they, they kicked him to death. Johnny at one point actually lifted his head up and, and they came back and they, they actually stood on his head and that's, that's what killed him. His um, brain swelled up that much. We'll get you, you gypsy. You smelly, dirty red gypsy. You gypsy bastard. And you run back and hot Johnny kick. He still shouted and still got the words in. You gypsy bastard. Jippo. Still got the racist part into it. Had to get it in. So what happened then is, later on that evening, we got a phone call saying Johnny was rushed in to hospital. So the family rushed over. Everyone was running here, phone calls. We never believed about it. We thought Johnny was going to go into hospital and have a scar or some stitches and black eyes. But when we, on the way over, we found out Johnny um, just died. Then there's only later on that evening then we found out how he died. He was being bit by a racist attack. As we claim it, we still say it was a racist attack. Johnny was a lovely child. Quite child. His father still never got over it. Still taking very much. We can never. This is my song, Johnny. God rest his soul. Always a smiling face. Always happy go lucky. 
the school was very supportive, the chapel was very good, every one of the people around her was very, very good, all of Liverpool was very good. I went down straight away to the site. I can remember sitting there having a cup of tea with the family and they were devastated. Shortly afterwards there was a, a big celebration. It was a, an overall one, but um, uh, Johnny Delaney was, um, was mentioned specifically uh, and they remembered him and the family were invited to that. The Lord Mayor was there, other civic dignitaries, and they were making very clear that everyone is, is, is welcome in the city and everyone is part of this, the civic community. The death of Johnny Delaney is symbolic. It indicates the way that we've gone wrong and that his sacrifice, his martyrdom, was the martyrdom of the gypsy and traveller community. Uh, he was actually murdered because he was a gypsy. Um, and it got almost no publicity whatsoever. In fact, because of his Irish background, the only people who had showed a bit of interest were the Irish newspapers. So I found that very, very striking, that difference between, you know, what is the focus down south and what is the focus up north. Um, but other than that, you know, it was... Um, again, Cheshire has it's got some very deprived areas like Winness and Runcorn, um, parts of Warrington, but then in places like Macclesfield and Wilmslow, it's got some of the richest part of the country, you know, so there was that big difference, and you often found that places like Macclesfield and Wilmslow were the most demanding, because they had a certain expectation, a standard of life that they expected you to try and preserve, so, but I think, you know, in all the places, really, you know, your challenge is the same, you know, you're running a force, you always have far more demand um, than, than you can cope with, um, and you try and keep come up with a, you know, with that balance between you want local policing, you want strong neighbourhood policing, but you also got to be good at all the various specialisms. And I think ultimately, you know, as a chief constable in all the forces, that's the dilemma. You know, you can shift the deck chairs, you can call it different names, you can have another change programme. But essentially, you know, that's the dilemma. And probably again over my police career, Oliver, that, again, is the dynamic that changed. When I joined policing, it was basically you were either uniform or you were a CID. And in uniform, there was just patrol and there was traffic. That was it. And obviously, over time, that was one of the probably, again, the most profound change of policing. Lots and lots more specialisms along the way, um, even down to, you know, in every single police station. Um, and so you get to a stage, absolutely, as a chief constable, where on the face of it, you have more money. You have more staff than you had before. But actually on the ground, you have far fewer because you've had to staff all the various specialisms which grew up along the way because of, and a lot of it was about developments, you know, dealing with domestic violence and rape a lot better, but just the complexity of new forms of, 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 of criminality. I, I want to, to talk about, obviously, the opportunity came up in round about sad period for GMP because you say the chief constable passed away and that opportunity presented itself. The Greater Manchester uh, Fleet Chief Constable's role is an extremely important one, not only at local level but also at the regional and national level. The, interview, uh, the panel members were unanimous in their decision and it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to the gentleman who will lead the force into a new era of policing, Peter Fye. Thank you Chairman. Um, can I say what a tremendous honour it is uh, to have been appointed <coughs> as the new Chief Constable of Greater Manchester? This is one of the top jobs in policing. There is an enormous challenge out there. This is a very exciting uh, city region uh, in terms of its, uh, what it's achieving and its potential for the future. And I think policing and Greater Manchester Police
can play a really important part um, in the continued development of Greater Manchester and of course very, very importantly, continuing with the reduction in crime, continuing with the success uh, in dealing with serious and organised crime and counter-terrorism, uh, but very importantly as well, improving the day-to-day -day service uh, to the good people of Greater Manchester uh, that it is our duty to serve. What was that process like in throwing your hat into the ring for the, for the top job, the second largest force in the country, as you say, I think a budget of 600 million, incredible responsibility. Um, were you ready? Yeah, I think it was ready. Well, I think it was, yeah, I think it was ready. Um, although, you know, big policing is very, very challenging. It is very different. Um, so, you know, in terms of, you know, it will obviously been an enormous tragedy and shock to GMP, um, you know, the whole circumstances around the death of Michael Todd. Um, but then, you know, when, when I went for that, in effect, you know, the competition, there were three other chief constables. So there were four chief constables applied for that job. Um, so obviously I was proud um, when I was the one that got through and got selected. Um, you know, Manchester is an incredible place. Um, you know, and I remember travelling around the Mancunian Way, as it's, tri as it's called, and you, you see the whole city around you with all these tall buildings and all this stuff, and you think, gosh... You know, I'm going to be in charge of that. Um, but then when you get to know the place, it's not just about Manchester. It's about places like Rochdale and Oldham and Wigan, um, you know, incredibly diverse, um, deprived. So, you know, it was, uh, you know, an enormous privilege. Part of that is about leading a complex organisation. Um, but, you know, the difference as well is that when you're in a small force, people do their best, but they don't have the same level of experience and expertise. And you come to a force like Greater Manchester and you have some of the most expert and experienced people almost in the world. You know, and, and we had, you know, global experts in certain fields and people that were just incredibly experienced in dealing with organised crime, um, with murder and things like that. Um, you know, and you had the room to develop specialisms around surveillance. So in a strange way, it's a bit more straightforward. You know, I was very conscious, like in Surrey, that I'd have inspectors dealing with a firearms incident who'd never dealt with a firearms incident before. Not their fault, but it was just because it didn't happen. Um, so, you know, in a strange way, uh, in a big force, you have far more support and resources and capability around you. You know, if you need to, you can absolutely throw the kitchen sink at a job. Uh, and that's, you know, that was the, always the great thing about Greater Manchester. When we needed to mobilise, we could. And, and you know, it, it was, you know, dealing with the party conferences and some of the big events, the football matches, you know, Greater Manchester was just awesome. You know, the, the, the capabilities of the officers and the capability of the force. But on the other hand, running a big city force is very, very different. You know, policing a big city. And I, I probably learned that over time, Oliver. I also learned it by doing some work in America and seeing what was happening there. And over my time, gosh, I realised, you know, what is the culture of big city policing? And it's very different from the culture of places like Cheshire and Surrey, with due respect. You know, that there is far more intensity, the operational challenge, uh, the danger, the challenge of organised crime, but also the constant big events. In Cheshire, you could concentrate just on local policing. That was what Cheshire was about. It was what it was good at. In Greater Manchester, yes, you're trying to be good at local policing but at the same time next weekend there's a big football match there's a demonstration um there's a terrorist incident uh there's the party conference and so we're all going to get in vans and mobilize and do and that i think that was part of the challenge you know 
and trying to make sure always no the most important thing we do is local neighborhood policing in those areas and everything else is built upon that um but that is the challenge and obviously in a place like greater manchester you have big areas like wigan and rochdale that are bigger than some forces you know and they have certainly far more crime and incidents than individual police forces um, they're big entities um, and so you have to try and pull that together in a cohesive old working together but at the same time you recognize that they've all again got their own identity and Wigan is different from Stockport and Trafford and all those sorts of things so you know but it's also as I say that big city culture of people of a place that never stops that's at it 24 hours a day that has a very active local newspaper um, and then we had Media City turn up with all the focus from the BBC and, and all the other news organisations um, to the extent, you know, you, you, were, you, you were sort of under scrutiny 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And again, that's probably what changed over my time. You know, again, I'd started policing at a time when after, you know, about 10.30 at night, the place went quiet and you were the only people about were the police until about five o'clock when you saw the milkman turn up. And of course, over time, that changed massively, but particularly in a place like Greater Manchester, where often the busiest times were four or five in the morning when people were coming out of the clubs. We, are, you know, we often ask, are we ready for that next rank? Are we ready for that next big job that's coming our way? We, how did you prepare your family for this responsibility that you were taking on? I don't think I probably did. You know, that, that, you know they've all, they were always incredibly supportive and, you know, they got on, you know, with their own lives. I was very lucky, you know, I've got four children, um, and they've always been very supportive, but ultimately they've got up being, you know, just been teenagers and done what they did, and you know, um, so you know they, they were aware of some of the publicity. There was one particularly painful area um, where I was placed. Uh, somebody made an allegation against me. Um, the uh, what was it called in the, whatever it was, whichever <laughs> complaint body they were called at that time, you know, they decided to do an investigation into me. They called it a criminal investigation. All that was all over newspapers. I had to, you know, talk to my family and talk to my kids about this is what it meant. And my name is in the paper and all the rest of it. That went on for eight months. And then they suddenly decided I was under investigation. I was not under investigation any long. Never really found out what all that was about. Lots of officers go through that. So that was probably the most difficult time in terms of, you know, that publicity. But other than that, I think, you know, your kids and your family just get used to the fact that, you know, you're on telly again and your dad's in the newspaper and, and, and also are just great at t taking the mick out of you. And I never had a chance of being pompous and all the rest of it because my kids always, you know, that's that bloke on the telly, but his dad and he's a bit bloody chaotic and he's no good at doing it yourself and he does stupid things. You know, that's... I was very lucky that they always, I always had them really, you know, to, uh, you know, to absolutely to make sure I never got too bad, felt too much self-important. Significant budget cuts and, and, and were made and implemented across the country. Forces were put under significant pressure to reduce uh, their, their expenditure. And, and that affected greatly the ability. I think um, the presence of community policing was withdrawn slightly and, and, and police forces had to almost remodel kind of how they executed their duties. How challenging was that for you as a chief constable? It's it's quite a politicised role in terms of very forward facing. But were you able to sort of express or you know get across your dissatisfaction or push back from some of these mega changes that were going on through a period of austerity and the the impacts that that you could see that was going to have on your police force? Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, probably you know, no, no question. You know, the most difficult time I had in policing um, in terms of dealing with that. Up to that point, 
every single year, police can be given more money uh, and often more staff, you know, just been constant, utter growth throughout my police career. And suddenly we got to this point where, along with all, obviously lots of other public services, we were having our budget cut quite severely. Uh, and it was incredibly difficult about how we were going to deal with that. Uh, I remember one day when I went out um, uh, on patrol uh, with neighbourhood policing and we had an amazing uh, reception from local people and seen some great examples of what PCs and PCSOs were doing. But I remember coming away from that and thinking, you've probably seen your high point in policing because I knew what was coming down the track. Uh, and obviously, as chiefs, number one, you know, we had to accept that the rest of the country was going through this, other public services were going through this. Um, we challenged it in various ways. Um, but at the end of the day, you are not a politician. Um, and I know even now, some people say on Twitter, well, people like me, you should have done more to challenge. But at the end of the day, you are not a politician. You express your views. You tell this is what will be the operational consequences. At that point, the inspectorate said, yes, you can take out this percentage of policing. But if you take out more, it will have this impact. The government decided to take out more. And there's no question it had an impact. But unless, in effect, you resign and walk away, what else are you going to do? And all that will mean the cuts will still continue. It just means somebody else will have to do it. So you had no option. You could you could, you you could complain in public. You could blame very much in private, but at the end of the day, you had to run a police force. You had to keep the public safe as you could. You had to find a way through it for your staff, and telling your staff and the public that this is all just going to be Armageddon and um, it's all going to end in disaster. All that would have meant it would have been the criminals would have thought, "Brilliant, happy days. We're going to do what we like," and I couldn't have that. You know, I had to come up with. We had to come up with a plan. But the most painful day was going to um, a, a football ground. We took over a football ground, a football stadium. We brought in nearly every single member of police staff in Greater Manchester and said, really, this is absolutely horrible, but these are the cuts we're going to have to be made. This is how we're going to do it. But quite a number of you in this room are going to be made redundant. And that was a really horrible thing to say because obviously we couldn't make police officers redundant. Uh, and then we had to go through that enormous process of consultation and you become an expert in HR law and process. Uh, it was very, very painful. But at the end of the day, we ended up with literally a handful of people that we had to make compulsory redundant. Other people, we were either they decided to take voluntary redundancy or we were able to move into another job. Uh, there were a small number of people who, particularly because of their mortgage insurance, um, in effect, had to be made compulsory redundant for that to be kicked in. But in the end of the day, you know, it's a very... But that didn't mean it wasn't really, really painful for every one of those. And, of course, the force lost all the capability of all that police staff support all around them, yeah. What was your view on the Windsor report at that time? Well, you know, Windsor did his... I was heavily involved. I led, um, you know, the police chief's response to Windsor. And... Um, and... Uh, you know, I had a very clear view. In fact, I convinced all the chief constables to have a clear view and that we had to move to a different workforce model whereby we were able to reward our staff for their expertise. That had happened in nursing and teaching where nurses and teachers were able to earn more money um, because, uh, you know, of their expertise, because they were now um, a more expert nurse and able to take work off doctors or teachers were getting more money for being subject leads or year group leads, and that wasn't possible in policing. You could only earn more money 
by being promoted or doing more years service. And so we argued for a totally different workforce model. And in the end, you know, Tom Minzer didn't accept that. I think it was a massive missed opportunity. Um, you know, I, 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 I think largely it failed. Mm. You know, he, he chose, he changed one or two things around the edges, but nothing more substantial. And that really was the problem, Oliver, moving forward. Policing was asked to make this huge change and make these reductions, but policing was not given the reform to actually be able to work in a way which meant we could operate with less money, that we could reward our staff in a different way, for instance. And that, again, you know, was, I think, you know, that was the big problem with austerity. Okay, were the cuts necessary? Well, if they were, they were. But government then had a responsibility to bring in reforms to make it, you know, easier for policing to survive with those cuts. And it didn't. You know, it made some changes around the edges. It sold off Brams Hill. It brought in police and crime commissioners. It renamed ACPO as the National Police Chief Council. It was just ridiculous. There were no fundamental reforms. There still have been no fundamental reforms. And, um, you know, as a result, policing is, is you know, is, is, that's one of the reasons policing is struggling at the moment. So, Peter, one of the greatest challenges that I wanted to explore with you as the Chief Constable is I, I don't think there is any greater challenge in terms of when you're leading such a large, large organisation to lose staff in terms of... Uh, operational staff that are killed in the line of duty and I'm re reflecting more in detail about the 18th of September 2012 when we tragically lost Nicola Hughes and Fiona Bone both incredibly young with with so much of their careers ahead of them. This is one of the darkest days in the history of Greater Manchester Police if not the police service overall because we have lost two deeply loved and, and valued colleagues because they are part of our team. Policing is very much a family. These were two officers going about their normal duty. Like all officers, they went to a variety of incidents not knowing what it was that they would face. Clearly, the police service is not perfect. We know there have been a number of high-profile incidents. But below that, day in, day out, Police officers go about their duty, go into dangerous situations, unexpected situations, show great bravery, great courage, and are with people at the very worst moments in their lives. And this is exactly what these two officers were doing. How, as a chief constable, did you um, deal with that situation, both personally and professionally? How did you come about being advised of it? And can you give us a bit of a background as to how it came about? Yeah, um... It was actually the time of the Olympics in London, which obviously was a massive national event, uh, the period leading up to that. Um, and in fact, you know, we'd had an, a number of horrendous um, murder shootings, um, which were related to organised crime. Um, and uh, this guy who uh, eventually murdered Nicola and Fiona, he had been involved in that. Um, and these have been very violent attacks involving um, grenades, which obviously was not something you normally see in, in UK policing. Um, so these have been very violent attacks. And essentially, we were on an enormous manhunt to try and find this man. Uh, and part of the problem was because there was so much publicity about the London Olympics, quite understandably, it was very hard to get any media coverage on this particular case. 
And up to that point also, um, he'd been essentially killing or attacking um, people, other, uh, other criminals or, 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 or their families. Um, so there was an enormous manhunt involving you know, quite a number of forces assisting us, huge numbers of firearms officers, uh, some help from the intelligence sister services, enormous support from analysts and other people. Um, but uh, despite huge amounts of efforts, huge numbers of search warrants and visits and, and all the rest of it, um, you know, we hadn't located him. Um, this had been an ongoing operation. Obviously, I've been very much involved in it. Um, and then, uh, sadly, on the day of the murder, we were just having a quick chief officers meeting when uh, the detective chief superintendent rushed in and said um, two officers have been shot. And then there was a horrible period of about 20 minutes um, where we first heard that one officer was definitely dead and we hoped and prayed that the other officer had survived. Um, but sadly, um, she was uh, dead as well. Uh, and then you quickly, you know, in a confused period, you learn about the, the circumstances. The guy who committed the murder was in custody. He'd driven to the local police station and had himself, handed himself in. Uh, and then you're in an enormous rush about how can you get to the families of those officers to tell them the horrible news um, before, um, you know, the media finds out. Um, and so we had to deal with that. We had to put together um, a welfare plan. Um, and immediately I had to prepare for uh, a news conference to uh, tell the, the nation the news. Uh, and I was determined in that news conference that I was not going to read from a statement, that I was going to say it from the heart. Um, I was a bit worried that I'd confused the names, um, but went in there and just spoke from the heart as to what had happened um, and the circumstances. Uh, and the names of these two uh, wonderful officers. And then obviously you learn more about those officers. Um, uh, and I think very soon after, um, got to meet the two families at Sedgley Park, the training centre, um, and, and an enormous time. Uh, and then you start a journey where those families, you know, you get very close to them, you understand their pain, you work with them very closely. You know, in effect, they become friends. And you try and support them through this enormous national event. Normally, you know, a family funeral is a very personal event. Uh, we ended up with two huge national events in Manchester. Uh, and, you know, we got incredible support from the public, support from government, Prime Minister turns up, um, huge support, to be fair, from the media. Uh, both funerals, you know, were broadcast live. People like Alex Ferguson turned up and was in the crowd enormous support from policing around the UK, um, but you're also dealing with the impact on colleagues, on the wider force, um, you know, the threat that they feel, uh, and you're trying particularly to put together a welfare plan which will capture everybody uh, and the trauma everybody will be going through, and at the same time trying to keep the force going. And it was a strange period because in that period immediately after, there were a lot of tears, there were a lot of hugs, there was a lot of emotion. And I really said to the force, look, please, let's hold on to this. You know, we, we've acted as human beings in the face of an enormous tragedy. Let's try and hold on to that. I'm not sure we did, um, you know, in terms of just being kind to one another and recognising emotions, recognising that we have grief, that we have, um, you know, trauma. And I still don't think policing is very good at recognising that. You know, in the heat of that particular enormous tragedy, 
you feel it, you recognise it, you put in welfare plans. The policing is not so good at the day-to-day -day trauma that officers go through. So, you know, it was an incredibly painful time. A lot of the officers who had been involved in the investigation and literally spent 24 hours a day trying to find this man, they obviously were devastated about the fact they'd not been able to capture him beforehand. You're always going to get questions, people saying you should have done this, you could have done that. You know, I'm absolutely confident we did everything we possibly could using the best expertise that was out there. Um, and, uh, you know, but it was obviously an incredibly painful time, but, you know, enormous public support, enormous public support from policing um, and still, you know, in contact with those families. And I'm actually preparing to do a do the police unity tour um, for care of police survivors. And I noticed on my page the other day that Paul Bone, um, Fiona's father, had actually sponsored me for the bike ride. So, you know, you, you keep in touch. But, you know, probably through that, Oliver, I was already involved in care and police survivors. Um, but that absolutely, you know, raised the whole issue about families of officers who die on duty, what they go through, the enormous support that they initially get, you know, from the force and everybody around but how inevitably that dissipates in time and how only families that are in that position can understand what it means, how it feels and can help other families, you know, and probably from that position, I got more involved in care of police survivors and, and, and now chair the charity and it's the most wonderful charity. I'm Tim Buckley and I'm the Chief Executive of Care of Police Survivors. Care of Police Survivors looks after the families of police officers who die on duty. We provide opportunities for them to get together to support each other, to build networks that help and are there for the tough times. Peer support is absolutely vital. The shared experiences of others who've gone through exactly the same thing. When you lose an officer or a member of police staff on duty, it's such a shock and the range of emotions and the pain that family members go through is extreme. All COP survivors have gone through that in one degree or another. What Care of Police Survivors does is give you access to people who've got that shared experience. We organise relationship weekends, so partners weekends, siblings weekends, children's weekends, where we bring particular relationship types together, where their experience, their shared experiences are going to be closer. But we also provide one very big survivor weekend a year, where any survivor and the families will come together to celebrate and to remember and to be able to share in a very safe space the losses. And that culminates that weekend with a remembrance service at the National Memorial Arboretum, where we bring the survivors and members of the police forces together to remember and to celebrate the lives of their officers. The first time we came, we only came to the service on the Sunday and I was feeling very, very apprehensive. I'd not met anyone before. And we were met by other further survivors with open arms and made to feel really relaxed. I think the thing that really gets to you is peer support and how important that is. To go into a room and be able to talk to people without having to explain why you're there. We're all going through the same thing, but we're going through it in different ways. A brother can go, you know, so obviously they have the, the siblings weekends, you have the spouses weekends, 
think it's a really good thing of cops to do. So you know on those weekends, well, the people that you're going to be directly speaking to are going to be those people who are in exactly the same situations. Obviously, there are times when individuals or family members or entire families struggle with a bereavement. So we partner with professional counselling bodies such as Winston's Wish and Red Arc who provide access to and counselling services for support, bereavement particularly, but other potentially emotional difficult times and we provide access to that and the charity picks up the bills on all of those as well. So if you want to know more about COPS, please do visit the website or follow us on Facebook and our social media. If you know anybody who's affected by the loss of an officer on duty recently or going back in history, our timeline doesn't stop, then they can contact us and we will welcome them into the COPS family. but it is about that personal experience of the families. And, you know, when they're faced with a massive national reaction and this huge organisation called the police force who's very good at running things and controlling things and wants to tell you how to, what to do and how to feel and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, you need the time to grieve as any family does. Um, you know, and, and care of police survivors, cops, you know, creates those times and those occasions. But, you know, it was it was an absolutely dreadful time. I thought what was interesting, Oliver, was despite that, I had very, very few officers saying to me, uh, boss, I want a gun. I thought that was very interesting, you know, because they reckon. But it, it also highlighted the huge challenge of organised crime. Uh, again, I don't think the, the, the country understands that, you know, understands the impact on society, understands the impact on legitimate businesses, the power of organised crime groups. And that was just very, very stark in this particular event. But it's sadly there all the time. Uh, and most of the gun crime in Manchester is related to that. And they've got enormous power and enormous influence. Uh, and the public don't see it because it's not in their faces and it doesn't. You know, they think it doesn't affect them day to day. It does because, you know, a lot of the day to day crime, cars being stolen, um, fraud, all sorts of things are driven by organised crime groups and the markets that they create. Um, so that was at the heart of that. And really what drove forward then was uh, Operation Challenger, which is still going in Greater Manchester, which was bringing together all the agencies and saying, this is your, the threat of organised crime. It affects every community, it affects every agency, and we need the support and the powers and the information, the intelligence from every single agency to combat that. Uh, and that's still the approach in Greater Manchester, which particularly they're using at the moment against, you know, those organised crime groups involved in uh, the markets in counterfeit goods. 2015 was your departure from GMP after what was an incredibly uh, successful career in British policing. Were you ready to leave at that time? Yeah, I mean, other people can decide whether it was successful, you know, it was successful in terms of the movement. Um, but I just got to a time, really, Oliver, where... Um, you know, the pressure of the job, the 24-hour focus, um, you know, the impact of social media, politicians, all those sorts of things. Um, you know, police and crime commissioners were introduced. I had a very good police and crime commissioner, Tony Lloyd. He was a former minister, a very experienced politician, but I could see what was developing around us in terms of that very direct political control. Uh, and, you know, it was not what I'd grown up with. Um, but it was, it was really about the fact it's just that constant pressure and as I've sort of said a couple of times, often, you know, your greatest opposition questioning challenge comes from within. You know, and when you, particularly when you're driving through change and you have to make difficult decisions and some people aren't happy, 
and inevitably in a big organization you spend about you have about half a dozen people who you spend a lot of time dealing with because of their grievances or their complaints or their employment tribunals or whatever um you know and you get on and do that and you have the most amazing time and you see the most amazing things and it is the most enormous privilege um, and literally one day you can be out on patrol visiting a drug addict in Bolton and the next day, you know, you're in the in the office of the Home Secretary and you get to meet Her Majesty the Queen and all those wonderful things. But it is the day-to-day pressure of policing um, and the way, as I say, that that's become more absolutely relentless and 24 hours a day and the political pressure and the media criticism has become ever greater, um, you know, and, and, and therefore, yes, it absolutely was the time I wanted to leave and try something else. But, you know, I was a chief constable for 13 years. That is unheard of now. You know, most chiefs are serving for three or four years. Um, and I can understand that, but it does mean that policing doesn't have that longevity. It doesn't have, you know, and, and, and for all the strengths and weaknesses, you know, I saw policing through a long period, um, you know, um, uh, and, 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 and got in a position where I could challenge and influence because, you know, I was pretty secure. I think the trouble for a lot of chief constables now, they're on contracts, they're under pretty direct political control and their ability to speak out and to challenge and say things and speak for the profession is more and more limited. Um, and, you know, jobs like the Commissioner of the Met and Mark Rode is a big friend of mine, but jobs like that are almost impossible to do and impossible to succeed in because at some point events and politics are going to take you out. Um, and that is very, very different. You know, one last point really is cops, care of police survivors. It was based on an American model. They've got cops in the United States. And very recently, some of our survivors went across to the ceremony in Washington and were really struck by the fact that this was a big national event. Lots more politicians there, huge support from all the pol- from the police forces, outriders, huge amounts of stuff turning up, you know, this huge event. And that's not really our events. You know, we don't get the same recognition and support. We don't have the same position. And of course, American policing has come under a lot of criticism after the murder of George Floyd and things like that. But still, there's a there's a support and a recognition of policing in the United States that we don't get in this country. Um, you know, and, and I've got a huge amount of respect for the military but and the armed forces, but they are in a difficult position. They're put on a different different pedestal to policing. It's not regarded properly as a profession, um, you know, and, and that makes the whole thing harder to do. Now, some of that is positive. You know, we're challenged as a police force. This country is very questioning. We've got, you know, one of the only police forces in the world, which is routinely unarmed. You know, you have to be good because you are, the public is very demanding. But, you know, I think it is that that is more challenging in terms of morale. And I think a lot of, a lot of the public don't understand what the police do. And, you know, I can well understand why morale is pretty poor at the moment, because a lot of officers just feel unappreciated, misunderstood um, and not valued. Uh, And at the moment, sadly, I can't see that getting a lot better. You have two big highlights, obviously, um, being knighted and receiving the QPM, the Queen's Police Medal. They must have been incredible days for you to receive both those accolades for the work you've done. I don't know, really. You know, it's never in a way been a big thing for me. Other people think it is, you know. Um, the good thing about being knighted and being a sir, it wasn't for me, you know, it was for GMP. Uh, I, I, I wanted it because it recognised that Greater Manchester is a big police force and being the chief is, a, is an important position. I'd also done quite a lot of national work. You know, I did a lot of national work on top of that job. I didn't need to do that, but I did it. And so I think it was recognition for that. But I was always aware that there were far more deserving cases amongst 
just people in the community and, and my own officers that were far more bloody deserving than I was. So, you know, I got it. We had a nice day at the palace. Um, it was an honour meeting the Her Majesty the Queen. Um, it was a nice day for, as I say, for my family. But, you know, it's, it, I'll be honest, it's not, you know, I don't, I don't use the Sir title now much. You know, I've got it, but, you know, I, people know me as Peter, um, the, you know, the bloke who goes walking the dog fairly scruffy in my local area. But for me, it was important. It was important, Oliver, because of that issue about recognition for policing. And lots of other people are getting knighted and other organisations get it pretty automatically. And so I took it because it was recognition for, you know, the position of Greater Manchester. Uh, and I do think on the whole, if you step up and take on that responsibility and all that pressure, and hopefully you do a reasonable job at it, you do, you know, deserve some form of recognition. There's no money comes with it. You know, you don't get any, you know, anything like that. It is just the title. But for me, it was more about, no, this is recognising GMP and saying, yes, it has its challenges, it has its criticisms. Manchester is an amazing place to work in. Um, and therefore, yeah, the guy who takes on that responsibility will get that recognition. Well, Sir Peter Fay, recipient of the QPM, it's been an absolutely fascinating just over an hour of conversation hearing about your career from the early 1980s up until when you departed GMP in 2015, having completed an incredible over 30 years in British policing. So on behalf of uh, my listeners and I, thank you ever so much for your public service dedication, both to your officers and to the communities that you've served across five forces across the United Kingdom. It's an incredible achievement. So thank you ever so much for taking the time to, to share some of your stories and to your insights into your life and career in policing. And we wish you all the best with COPS and your other endeavours outside of outside of policing in the private sector. Yeah, thanks very much, Oliver. Thank you. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm very lucky. I had a wonderful career. I worked with some amazing people um, and I've had a great, you know, wonderful opportunity since in, in what I do. But care of police survivors, COPS is really, really important to me. Um, you know, so if anybody's got a few spare quid, um, you know, support COPS. But, it, you know, it is for the families. It's not so much about the money. It is about we recognise the pain that they've gone through, the sacrifice that their loved ones has, has been, and that policing always shows that we're there to support them. But thanks, Oliver, for this opportunity. Thanks for the interest. I really enjoyed it. And at the end of this show, I'll put a link to everyone so they can find the COPS website. They can have all the contact details and they can reach out. And as, as, as Peter said, if you've got any spare loose change and you can make a donation, that would be absolutely fantastic. But for now, Sir Peter, thank you ever so much. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced,